before you is from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 to 33. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Get ahead of the article and create your own narrative. Uh, this is a line in a story that I came across this past week of an editor giving feedback to the author who's writing her autobiography. Uh, and there was some scandal in her life and more was about to be uh, sort of revealed. And so the editor's advice was get ahead of the article that she knew was coming down the pipe uh, and create your own narrative, right? Um, beat that article and write your own narrative and get your narrative out there. Now, this, um, this little story is, is so telling. It completely encapsulates uh, this, the spirit of our age. Uh, our age, especially in the West, is all about the power of narrative and writing your own narrative. Uh, in fact, and I don't want to uh, succumb to the temptation to go down a rabbit trail here, but even during COVID, uh, you could argue that there were many narratives that were out there. Uh, and so here's a quote that I just kind of Google searched, quotes about writing your own narrative. And, and so Harley Davidson apparently uh, wrote, when writing the story of your life, don't let anyone else hold the pen as you're riding that motorcycle and, and creating your own happiness, right? But what was interesting um, in the Google results and the images right beside it was also, when writing the story of your life, don't let anyone else hold the pen by Jack Kurua, right? <laughs> so which is it? And who's writing what? And this is just very telling of the spirit of our age. And especially living in Toronto in 2022, uh, everyone is about writing their own life story and don't let anyone else hold the pen. And this happens in really every area of life. We, we can go on and on. Now today, uh, first, I, I want us to pause and appreciate the power of narrative, okay? Because it's the culture that we're living in. Whether you've taken time to think through it or not, whether you've taken time to articulate it for yourself or not, just that there's this dynamic that goes on in the city we live in, in the country we live in, in the world we live in, you, you need to, at least for starters today, begin to appreciate the power of a story that you put yourself in and it shapes your entire life. It shapes your outlook, your values, your decisions. Now today, um, and every Sunday really, one way we can understand the purpose of this gathering uh, to worship is that we are re-entering again. We are gladly re-entering, reaffirming a different narrative. A narrative that we believe is the narrative the story that explains all our stories. And that's the gospel narrative, uh, a.k.a. 
God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit story. The story that we see in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Now just to convince you more, uh, when we look at Acts, don't worry, we will get to Ephesians today. Uh, When we look at Acts 17, I love this scene of Paul the Apostle, one of uh, the church's greatest missionaries. And he is in Athens, which is very much like Toronto uh, today. Uh, pluralistic and um, just all kinds of values and sexuality and all that uh, all over the place. And so now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. And so here is first a good sign, uh, something to even look out for in our own Christian lives as we go about our everyday lives. Do we find our hearts being provoked? Uh, Is our our radar, our gospel radar, our ability to um, just filter our culture through the lens of the gospel narrative, is that sharp? And are there lights and bells and whistles going off, uh, radar signs going off? Are we provoked within our own spirits? And why was he provoked? Because he saw that the city was full of idols, full of false worship, full of uh, values that are contrary to the gospel. And so what does he do? As he's provoked, he reasoned, meaning he had just good dialogue and conversation. And where? This is what I want you to notice. First, he reasoned with the religious people, uh, with the Jews and the devout persons. And so what Luke, the author of Acts, is also trying to show us is that even the religious folk had been colored by the culture. Why, from being provoked by idols in the city, does Paul have to reason with even the religious folk? Because somehow uh, it had seeped and colored even their religion, their approach to God. And so right there, even for the church, as Christians, we need to have the humility uh, and just constantly coming before the church uh, before God, sorry, um, and asking, Lord, how do we need to continue to mature as a church? How do we uh, continue, need to continue to be purified and made blameless before you and washed by your word? But he also goes on from religious people to engage those in the everyday, the secular, the, the, the marketplace. Okay? And anyone who happened to be there. On a quick side note, this could also be uh, a biblical warrant for street evangelism and, and just the goodness of still going out and just engaging with random people. We see Paul doing it here. Of course, how we do that and how we engage is uh, of all uh, importance as well. And so notice that Paul here, um, jumping a few verses later, he was invited to the Arago, uh I always have trouble pronouncing this, Areopagus, or Mars Hill, a place where they debated, and he addresses them, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Okay? Now, for you and I, the the point here is that Paul finds a common ground. And he launches his sermon, his evangelistic sermon, his his talk to uh, begin to teach Uh, these non-Christians about God the Father, Jesus, and the Spirit. He speaks of the resurrection. But I want you to see that he found a common point. A common point. 
they were very religious because they had all these idols, and he started from there. Okay? Now, for you and I then, and the reason why I'm starting off the sermon this way is because uh, you and I also need to grow in the skill as we engage in conversation with the people in our lives to find that common point. And when it comes to matters of sexuality, singleness, and marriage, be, first, uh, rather than just dealing with those matters straight off the bat on the surface, what we need to find is that common longing in both our hearts, the person that we're speaking with and in our own hearts, and then from there building a bridge to the gospel and how the gospel is really the fulfillment of what they're longing for. Now Paul, in his letter to the Romans then, um, just to, again, set up more sort of the stage for the next six weeks or so, and really today's whole sermon is to set the stage for uh, the rest of the sermons come in. So we jumped from Ephesians 5 verse 1, and we're starting with the end because uh, Paul brings this passage, uh, this section, to its full conclusion, sort of the bottom line uh, in these verses that we're going to look at today, Ephesians 5, uh, 31 to 33. And so this will, the sermon and, and what I'm about to say now, it, it serves as sort of an introduction, uh, an introductory perspective, and just to set the stage uh, for talking about sexuality, singleness, and marriage. And so um, Paul, writing to the Romans, just picking up chapter 1, verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity and uh, Paul is speaking of how the world has gone awry. Uh, women pursuing unnatural relations, uh, men, and so forth. Uh, and to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And here's what's actually going on. Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. This is Paul's way of saying they came up with their own narrative. Okay? They came up with their own story. They came up, and that's their lie, with the narrative that they choose to believe, the story that gives them meaning and happiness. And they exchanged it for the Gospel narrative. Okay? And then what that means, very practically, instead what they look to as their God, as their source of happiness, what they worshipped is themselves, the creature, and things in creation, from material things, money, and outward things, and so forth, rather than the Creator God from whom all good things come from, and we should acknowledge and remember, and therefore follow Him. So, the Gospel narrative... And some of this might be just review for some of us, but uh, for some of us, maybe the first time really understanding. And, but w w I'm belaboring this because it's so important to understand the gospel narrative because what we want to ask of sexuality, singleness, and marriage is how this all fits into the gospel narrative, the gospel story. And you can just think of the gospel narrative really as a table of contents of history. And so uh, chapter 1, God creates. And there was the tree of life, there was Adam and Eve, and there's creation. But chapter 2, quickly, we see Adam and Eve uh, disobeying God. They became sons and daughters of disobedience, 
uh, eating of that forbidden tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, the serpent Satan was very much involved in that, in casting that temptation, in casting lies and a false narrative, a different narrative. But the good news, some 2,000 years ago in history, God sends His Son Jesus. And the cross and the empty tomb, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, now break in God's actual redeeming act. And he begins, God has been at work through all history, but now this very pointed, like just the, 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 really the climax of His redemptive power now beginning to unfold through Christ's death and resurrection. Uh, and finally, what we look forward to then uh, is the new creation. So there was creation, fallen creation, redeemed creation, and then new creation. And as we're going to see, it really is that one of the most vivid pictures of the new creation, how eternity kicks off, is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, the Christ and the church, His bride, becoming one, being united, and that wedding ceremony finally happening. And we as the church, those who have placed faith in Christ, uh, living as Christ's beloved in eternity and doing life in the new creation as God uh, seeks to redeem. So, what I want to emphasize, especially in, we're in this chapter right now, redeemed creation. And we're in between these times, longing for new creation. And what I want to emphasize as we are being redeemed is that above all when it comes to community here and talking about these things, that we would be a safe place of grace. That we would press in even more than topics of sexuality, uh, singleness, and marriage, that above all that, what most uh, wonderfully happens is that we continue to become a community of grace. A community of grace. Because if we're going to wrestle with these issues of sexuality, singleness, and marriage, we need to, especially uh, in our new communities and maybe in our families as we talk about these things, there has to be a, a grace. There has to be a confidence and security that we're not going to be rejected or turned away or, or judged or condemned for perhaps certain struggles that some of us might uh, be having. But that's not only about sexuality and singleness and maybe sometimes when marriage is, is troubled, but even opinions about COVID over the past two years um, and whatever other just tough topics. I think the more important um, goal for us as a church of Christ is that we grow into a community of grace where we can actually talk about these things. Okay? So, as a sort of overarching summary prayer uh, for all of us, Lord, help me trust. Help me trust, love, and pursue the vision of your gospel narrative. Right off the bat, the, the important application point, the important call to action is to first discern the culture's narrative and any way the culture has been uh, sort of infecting 
my own narrative, and then all the more to love and trust God's gospel narrative. As, as much as every desire within me wants to abandon God's gospel narrative, that by faith, and as I respond to the Spirit provoking me, that I would choose to love and trust God's story. That it's best to find myself fitting into God's story somehow. And as much as I don't naturally feel I fit because of whatever wayward desires in me, to trust and love that God's story is the right story and the good story. So what I want to do for the rest of the time today, and now we're going to actually start getting to Ephesians 5, uh, is to fill in the blank here. How does blank fit into the vision of God's gospel narrative? Okay? Uh, and so first, how does sexuality fit into the vision of God's gospel narrative? How does sexuality fit into the vision of God's gospel narrative? And so recall, I, I said that verses 31 uh, to 33 really are Paul's He's been going through this teaching on sexuality and, and holiness and so forth and getting into uh, marriage. And uh, right there as well, in between the lines are clear, strong teachings on singleness. And we'll get to all those uh, verses, 1 to 30, uh, in the next five weeks or so. And here is his glorious conclusion where he brings it all back full circle and says, bottom line, and he writes, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast. We sang those words a lot today, right? He will hold me fast. Uh, hold fast to his wife. And I want you to notice. And the two shall become one flesh. Now, most people recognize these words uh, as those words related to the institution of marriage and where God instituted marriage in Genesis. And therefore, these words the two shall become one flesh, we know that that is, uh, it's meaning a few things, but for certain, it is just speaking um, directly to the, the act of sex between man and woman. That they become one flesh as they engage uh, in that sexual union. And of course, there's deeper meaning to it as well that uh, they actually become one person and so forth. But my point is, that we should not, and what Paul wants, and more than my point, Paul's point, is that we shouldn't stop at our understanding of this expression of becoming one flesh as just between uh, a human husband and wife. Because, Paul goes on to say in verse 32, and to explain this verse, the deepest and truest meaning of this verse, the mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So even in Genesis, where this is quoted, that they become one flesh. That God creates man and woman in His image, male and female, and they become one flesh. That God put that there, ultimately, and really maybe even as first motive, to foreshadow a greater reality. Christ and the church. Paul is speaking ultimately about a future reality. He's not talking about first and foremost, and what Paul is saying is that God Himself is not talking first and foremost about human marriages. 
in the present or in the past. But he's ultimately speaking about a future, future to come reality of Christ and the church while, while pointing back to pre-fall. Okay? That's important to distinguish. Pre-fall. He's pointing back to the purpose of marriage. So, if we're to understand, let's, let's go back to now pre-fall uh, at creation. The purpose of marriage, sexuality, uh, sorry, the purpose of sexuality specifically was meant to be an overflow of untainted, intimate relationship between husband and wife in covenant, reflecting the very covenantal intimacy of God dwelling with man. Okay? If, if we're to understand Paul both looking forward, but also pointing back to the original purpose of the sexual union and marriage, I think this is a fair summary. Sexuality was meant to be an overflow. Adam and Eve, no sin, perfect relationship. No, you know, unfinished dishes to bicker over. No, you know, just rowdy kids to stress over and fight over how we're going to raise them and so forth. No bills to pay. No, you know, all of the stuff that, that gets, uh, serves as a wedge in marriages. No sin. No stress that way. And so it was a beautiful, natural overflow reflecting covenantal intimacy of God dwelling with man. Christ and church. So that's what it was pre-fall. Okay? Now, what we need to uh, acknowledge, and what's important to acknowledge at this point, is that Christ indeed has a moral vision for sexuality. Okay? There's, there is a morality tied to sexuality. Because in creation pre-fall, God certainly defines sexuality within very clear, tight parameters. And it's indeed moral because it reflects the very character of God. All of God's laws. You go through uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. All of the laws of God are there because they somehow directly reflect the character of God. Okay? That, that's why laws are laws. God's laws. That's why they matter, because they reflect his character. It's not because he just uh, is a control freak and just randomly comes up with laws because he wants to control us. No. It's because these laws, every one of them, reflect his very nature and character. And so sexuality, as God has uh, uh, inst- instituted it pre-fall, it's also moral because it reflects his very nature. Sexuality was meant to be an overflow of that intimate covenantal uh, relationship between husband and wife. Why? Because it is an overflow of Christ and the church. Of how God longs to dwell with man. So those who would say, ah, Christians are just killjoys. You know, sex, it's fun. I have these desires, even animalistic. Just let me be. Just let me express and live out and and just... uh, 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 satisfy my appetite? Why do you have to put all these rules on top of it? It's not that we just arbitrarily or or out of just being a killjoy want to put rules on top of it, but because we see that God provided these parameters because it reflects His very character, meaning His fidelity, 
His covenantal nature. And so still, we're still talking about pre-fall. Pre-fall. Sexuality in its pristineness. In its untaintedness. God created sexuality for covenantal. First, as a covenantal sign, seal, and renewal. Okay, pre-fall. As Adam and Eve would come together again uh, to know each other, to enjoy each other, to love one another, to be all the more built into that one fleshness, it was a renewal and a visible uh, just acknowledgement of this covenant between themselves before God. But also, God created sexuality for covenantal fulfillment. Because what's God's covenant with man but pre-fall? To go and multiply. To go and fill the earth. And this is what we mean, in other words, by procreation. Um, something about procreation, though, sounds, at least to me, a bit clinical. So hopefully this notion of covenantal fulfillment, just the ability to, to fulfill what you've promised to God, what God has asked of you, to go and multiply and fill the earth. And of course... God in covenant, He's not some stern judge ultimately. He certainly has a judge aspect to His character, but God in His fullness, how we will know Him in eternity, in His wholeness, He is both just exploding joy and love for His children, while He certainly is everything of perfect holiness. But certainly there is the enjoyment side to him. Case in point, the Bible is not for prudes. If you are prudish at all, then don't read the Bible because there's a lot of R-rated stuff in there from just even the darkness of sexuality and rape and abuse to just the, the pure, unadulterated, holy enjoyment of sexuality as in the Song of Songs. And if we're honest, the Hebrew scholars say there's a lot in the original Hebrew that is actually very graphic in its descriptions of this pure love between husband and wife. And so for covenantal enjoyment, but as we've been saying, uh, ultimately for covenantal personification. Personification is when uh, something represents something else in person. And uh, we see that Paul has been saying, ultimately, the truest meaning of marriage is about Christ and the church. And so human marriage, pre-fall, but also now as we're still being redeemed in this fallen world, this notion of personification, it, it's still there. And we'll get into that. We'll definitely get into that, especially when he hit... Uh, verses uh, 25 and, and onward. So now, I want you to notice that Paul quoting Genesis, and, and in Genesis, the way God uh, begins this institution, just this institutionalization of, of marriage, therefore, therefore. So meaning, something here is a conclusion. And so if we go back, it follows those words of therefore, it follows these verses. Then God said, let us make man in our image. I want you to notice that in our image comes up three times. Meaning, just Hebraic perfection. 
Trinitarian perfection. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. Now, straight off the bat then, we're we're talking about the gospel narrative here and then how does sexuality fit into the gospel narrative. I want you to see that straight off the bat, God himself defines the story. And in his own image, to use terms of our culture and our times, just the vernacular of today, God creates binary, male and female. Now, I know that that is an affront to those who don't naturally ascribe to Christian sexual ethics, but maybe you're hearing this whole gospel for the first time, okay? And, and, and my point is, more than Uh, being stuck on these surface words and so forth, no matter where you're at in your understanding of sexuality, singleness, and marriage, what we want to understand first is the gospel. Let's start with just hearing the gospel, understanding this great gospel story, and then having the, at least the the humble, the, the attitude of humility to see, okay, if this is God's great story, God is God, there is life after death, and it does matter how I relate to Him, then I need to honor and respectfully investigate what is God's great story? What are His requirements and how do I fit into it? Try to separate maybe valid baggage of Christians just hammering you with a moral without an explanation of the beautiful story that sets the context for those morals. But nevertheless, in Trinitarian perfection, in Hebraic perfection, God's image played out and manifested through humans in His own image, it's male and female. With deepest respect, of, of just humanity, just being a fellow human to those that this pertains. It's not the whole spectrum of LGBTQ+, and, and on and on and on in our culture just creates, you know, actually create more and more categories. Now, as the church, um, now speaking to Christians, what you need to do is Ask God for courage to trust this, to love this. Uh, that's why the prayer is, Lord, help me to trust and love and see myself in your gospel narrative. The point is, if you're a mountain climber and you're climbing a mountain, you don't ask the mountain to move. <laughs> You have to adjust to the mountain. And at least starting from this point, if you can just accept God is God, and these 66 books are His Word, and I receive that by faith, then this Gospel narrative, as much as my desires don't naturally line up with this story, Lord, would You help me to see how I and to fit into the story if this is your story. And so for the Christian, we need to, especially in these days, 
just continue to re-anchor ourselves, to re-root ourselves in this story. Not, not in an in angry, condemning manner that we're going around trying to just you know, blast the, the, the gospel canon and fire people with this. No, but first, between you and God, in our church community, just humbly, gently returning to the story and not forgetting that God has created in His image, male and female, He created them. And so this speaks to, already here, God's definition, God's parameters, His moral vision of sexuality, singleness, and marriage. And that is, sex is set apart to be enjoyed only in the marriage covenant between one male and one female. If you're not aware, our culture is at a place where they're calling this gospel narrative a myth in the category of Greek mythology and other whatever religious stories. They're just myths. But what we need to reaffirm today, for starters, is that this is not a myth. That's actually that exact wording is in that new law. And it's a live law right now. It's an active law. But it's not a myth. Now what we need to understand then, and where if your desires are completely um, just uh, antagonistic, or you're feeling friction as I say that, what we need to understand In God's gospel narrative, sexuality broke. Sexuality broke at the fall. Everything about ourselves, including our sexuality, it became broken at the fall. From our desires to even our bodies. And so safe place of grace kind of statement. What I in my own, just wrestling with all this and trying to understand, even as a pastor, how to minister to these situations, just scientifically, there's fact that that some babies are born with just uh, unclear gender anatomy. So what do you do with that? For starters, to understand and to be comforted that A lot of things broke at the fall. And so our attitude should be more knowing that there's chapter 3. Okay, God, given that things are broken, help my attitude to be how you have loved me, how you've been gracious toward me. And so to take your gospel, to take your grace from that starting place and show me how you long to gently apply your gospel to our fallenness. And so as, again, just a matter of introduction, um, the Bible does not fixate on LGBTQ plus issues. Okay? The Bible does not fixate on those issues alone. Does the Bible at some clear points call those issues out? Yes. Okay? But just as it also calls out those who are greedy, those who are liars, 
those who are idolaters. And so this is what, what I hope you're catching my, my point here, that it became broken at the fall along with everything else. Okay? The most mentioned sin, as far as I could best you know, just uh, survey the Bible this week, is not LGBTQ plus issues, but it's idolatry. Idolatry is the most mentioned sin in the Bible. Meaning, the root of all our brokenness. And it plays out in many different ways. But that's to say, while we're not meant to just fixate and be this condemning voice on this one issue that we want to just bug on, that's not to say that also that, that God has nothing to say about these things. He certainly does. And he does have a moral vision for sexuality, singleness, and marriage. Now, I'm realizing um, I'm going to have to break up today's sermon and kind of extend this series because uh, there's no way we're going to get through everything that I've actually prepared for today. Um, but that's okay. So I'll begin to land the plane, and I'm going to have to skip a few slides to the end. But here's where I think our culture is at. Um, our culture stops at, in terms of identity, at sexual identity. And I don't blame our culture because uh, it's, it's next to a regenerated heart that can actually relate to God and know the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Next to that, our sexuality is the most intimate, deepest place of what we can feel out and try to grasp of our identity. And even biochemically, it, it just wakes us up, just invigorates us in our bodies in a way that just makes us feel alive. And so I don't blame our culture for stopping here. And because they stop here, then from here they move on to trying to define their outward identity. But what the Bible teaches us is that there's something called the soul beyond our sexuality. Just a quick side note, in Jesus' teaching, he makes it pretty clear that in the new creation, there's no more marriage. At least human, husband and wife marriage. And there will only be one ultimate real marriage that lasts in eternity, that's Christ and the church. And so even that picture of eternity that we see is that what matters most, the identity that matters most is not our sexual identity, but it's, I'll say this, um, and I'll explain what I mean, it's our outer identity with our inner soul identity. Our outer, outer identity meaning that Christ's righteousness covers us. And we have those beautiful uh, robes of white linen that Revelation speaks of that represents Christ's righteousness. And Christ's righteousness from the outside being applied to us then regenerates our souls and our bodies. So that's the Christian identity. And so the, the, the culture, what it does is it, it is a question of identity. They're looking for who they are. But we have to, what we have to understand is we can't just stop at sexuality. 
even for the Christian, where some of your deepest pangs, uh, both single and married, we all have sexual desires. We all struggle sexually, whether single or married. And they both present their unique uh, angles of how we struggle with that. But even for the Christ follower, as we deal with these things, our identity is not to stop at our sexuality. We are first in Christ. Our first identity is not your ethnicity. It's not your financial status. It's not, and on and on and on, all these externals that we could mention, and including your sexuality. And so your identity, first and foremost, is in Christ. Okay? So the fallen purpose, when it comes to the fall, and how our culture generally looks to sexuality, it puts such uh, stock in sexuality for its identity. It's because, and at the core, is, it's all about self. It's all about self. If you're still living under the fall, the purpose of sexuality is for self-satisfaction, and that could be love or lust. But if we're really honest, even love, apart from Christ's self-sacrificial agape love, coloring uh, the relationship and your motive to love and be in romance, usually it is self-fulfilling. You love another person because it actually fulfills you. It satisfies you. And of course, there's just the obvious um, uh, way of self-satisfying as well, just wanting sex and fulfilling those desires just purely out of lust. In our fallen world, Sexuality now is about self-expression. And that's, I think, one very um, just uh, strong root of the whole LGBTQ community. That they want to express themselves as they try to listen to who they are on the inside. Certainly for some of us, we can reduce sex, and even Christians can be guilty of this, just to self-propagation. We only focus on the procreative aspect of this gift of sex, and maybe to continue our legacy. And some of us, for certain, sex is about self-preservation. If I can just be with this person, then I can level up in social status and in economic status and so forth. So, what we need to remember is that Christ, He preaches the same gospel to all no matter whether you're dealing with sexual sin, what, any other idolatrous sin, greed, lying, whatever it may be, Christ preaches the same gospel to all. It's this gospel narrative that in God's image, three times we are made in His image, male and female. That's the story. And what we're called to is to repent, meaning to consider how maybe my story isn't the right story. And if God is truly God, how do I fit into His story? And it's the same gospel. God, uh, Jesus didn't preach one gospel to greedy people, another gospel to um, gay people, and on and on and on. It's the same gospel to all. And we're all to wrestle with how do we fit into God's gospel story. I'm almost done. Just to kind of put us on the same page, and Sam Albury, uh, 
a, a brother in Christ uh, over in the UK, but openly uh, wrestling with what he calls same-sex attraction. And, and he distinguishes, and, and I, I think this is very helpful, uh, as we'll address more of these issues in the coming weeks. Um, he distinguishes between gay or lesbian and struggling with same-sex feelings, okay? same-sex attraction. To be gay or lesbian, and, and so I'm just saying this so that we can agree on the terms, and this is how I will be using the terms. Okay? Even if you have a different definition, um, just yeah, accept these definitions for the times that we're here together and talking about these things. And so he would define gay or lesbian as the actual lifestyle. And that you are saying your identity is first and foremost your sexuality. You're denying that your identity first is in Christ. Period. But you can be in Christ. And just as a heterosexual man or woman will struggle with adulterous thoughts and desires of someone outside of the marriage, so a brother or sister in Christ or a human being can have same-sex attractions, and that is their sexual temptation. And just remember, it's not wrong to be tempted, per se. Being tempted in and of itself is not sin. Even Jesus was tempted, but he is sinless. And so Sam Albury, very appreciative of just his deep reflections, the fact is, the gospel demands everything of all of us. If someone thinks the gospel is slotted into their life quite easily without causing any major adjustments to their lifestyle or aspirations, it is likely they have not really started following Jesus at all. Okay? And so the, the, the whole thrust of this first message in this little mini-series uh, is to equalize all of us. To, first of all, remove any uh, uncomfortability, any squeamishness. But let, let's, let's aim and let's ask God to make our church a place of grace where we understand his story and we're all in, we've all experienced that chapter too. We're all fallen and broken, no matter what we're struggling with. And the gospel demands everything of all of us. Not one sexual sin, whether heterosexual or homosexual, is, is easier or harder than the other. No, all of us are idolaters. All of us are sons and daughters of disobedience. And we all need grace. And we're all trying to see how we fit into the gospel story all the more. And so as a, just a practical application, um, question to end. Is our church a safe place of grace? Is our church a place where we, all the individuals here, are genuinely trying to live into this gospel narrative and seeing each other as just fellow sojourners in trying to live out this gospel of grace all the more? If a gay couple, and maybe there is one here today, uh, we're glad you're here. But if, if, if they walk through the doors, what would your attitude toward them be? 
if a heterosexual couple walked in through our doors, but they're cohabitating, what would your attitude toward them be? Uh, if someone not struggling with any of those sins, but they are greedy, you know they are a greedy person, would you relate to them any different than the first two scenarios that uh, I mentioned? See, I'm, I'm just trying to get to the point. Is our church a safe place of grace? Are we all acknowledging that we're broken and fallen, but our hope and our joy and our glory is chapter 3 and looking forward to chapter 4 and asking the question, how do we fit into this wonderful, ultimate, truest gospel narrative? Okay? And so the prayer, let me go back to the prayer. And let's end just praying this together. Would you join me? just in heart and voice. Lord, help me trust, love, and pursue the vision of your gospel narrative.